praise be to God. <clears throat> and uh, good morning to everyone seated here. Good morning to everybody listening online as well. As, as I stand here, uh, I stand here totally leaning upon God's grace. Um, the last two weeks have been tough and uh, in terms of health. And several brothers and sisters have been praying for me. I want to thank you for that. As I stand here, as always, but much more today, I want to stand here leaning completely on the grace of God. And my testimony this morning would be, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And I'm sure that's a testimony for a lot of us seated here this morning. <clears throat> so let me begin with a light story because it's a tough passage. All right. So the story is told of a pastor <clears throat> who got up on a Sunday morning in the pulpit and apologized for the band-aid on his face. And he explained and said, as I was shaving this morning in the bathroom, I was thinking about my sermon and I cut my face. And so the sermon was done, the offering was taken. And as they were counting the offering later that day, uh, there was a small note in the offering bag. And the pastor opened the note and it read this way. Next time, think about your face and cut the sermon. I want to say right at the outset this morning that I've given good thought to the length of my sermon today. But, the, <laughs> but as we move in the whole Council of God series, it's been a tough topic that's been given to me, right? So the topic that's been given to me, I think it's virtually impossible to satisfactorily tackle in the next one hour. But I'll do my best to contain it. Uh, to about 45 to 50 minutes, but I want you all to give me your undivided attention, please. It's a tough passage. I, wanna, I want you all to give me your undivided attention, <clears throat> but we must understand this. Let me make some introductory comments here first, and then move on to <clears throat> the sermon that's on hand. First of all, the Olivet Discourse, as it's called, are also it's called as the eschatological discourse. It's one of the most difficult passages to tackle and interpret in the entire New Testament. It is one of the most difficult passages to tackle and interpret in the entire New Testament. And few chapters of the Bible have triggered more disagreement among Bible interpreters than Matthew 24, Mark 13, and the parallel in Luke 21. So you have Matthew 24, and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And few passages have triggered more debates and more interpretations among Bible scholars than, this, than these passages. And the history of interpretation of this portion of scripture is immensely complex. So let's begin with that. So that's my first introductory comment. <clears throat> the second one is, in interpreting the passage, there's a crucial question that we must answer. There's a crucial question that we must answer, and that is, what is the relationship of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70 to all the events that surround the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future? Let me say that again. What is the relationship of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70 to all the events that surround the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of the Lord in the eschatological future. Now, as we consider this question to interpret the passage, 
There are three basic views that come up in answering this question. Now listen, please, very carefully. Three basic views that come up in answering this question. The first view basically says that all of the predictions of this particular discourse given by Jesus were fulfilled in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jewish rebellion was quashed by the Romans and Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus Vespasian, the Roman general in AD 70. And in AD 70, all the prophecies were fulfilled is what one camp says, one interpretation says. Now, I don't want to belabor the point by telling you the theological term for it. Let's just leave it at that. On the other hand, there is a second way of looking at things where some interpreters say that all of these predictions that Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse are entirely future. They'll be fulfilled only in the future. They've got nothing to do with what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. All right, it's clear so far. First of all, the first camp says that all of these predictions were fulfilled in AD 70. They've got nothing to do with what's going to happen in the future. The second camp says it's got everything to do with the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing to do with what happened historically in AD 70 in Jerusalem. <clears throat> And I want to say this morning that both these views cannot handle the complexities of the passage that we have on hand. So we're going to take a third approach, which sees the discourse as addressing both the historical destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, as well as the yet future return of Christ. The historical destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, as well as the yet future return of Christ. So that's the third approach we're going to take to interpret the passage. My third introductory remark has to do with what is called a pattern prophecy. To understand our approach, we need to understand something called pattern prophecy. All right. Now, there are too many technical terms for this. Some call it near-far fulfillment. Some call it double fulfillment and all of that. I don't want to get into all the details, but let's just call it very simply as pattern prophecy. What is a pattern prophecy? Now look at this, please. One event in the near future of the prophet, one event in the near future is the pattern for the second event in the distant future. Hear me, please, carefully. Now look at this thing. One event in the near future of the prophet is a pattern or a mirror for what's going to happen in the eschatological future or the distant future. So when the prophet looks at it, he may not be able to distinguish between distinguish between both these events, but there are two events there, one in the near future of the prophet and one in the far distant future. So one mirrors the other. The first event in the near future of the prophet is a pattern for what's going to come in the eschatological future. Take, for example, something called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Now, the day of the Lord... <clears throat> in the prophets is used to often talk about a short-term judgment, a short-term judgment which pictures a scaled-down version of the eschatological judgment, the final judgment that's that God is going to pour, upon, pour out upon the nations. The day of the Lord in the prophets is a near future judgment for the life of the prophet, which gives a miniature version or a scaled-down version of the final judgment that God is going to pour out upon the nations, right? For example, in the prophet Joel, for him, the day of the Lord in the near future is the locust plague. 
which caused famine, which ate up all the crops and caused famine. But Joel also talks of the day of the Lord as something where Yahweh in the distant future, at the end of history, is going to come as the judge and judge all the nations. So the day of the Lord, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment as well. Let's apply the same thing to our passage this morning and say that it is best to interpret the, the events of AD 70, the destruction of temple, as an anticipatory fulfillment of the events that are consummated at the return of Christ. Did you hear what, what I said? The destruction of temple in AD 70 is a pattern for the eschatological destruction and the judgment of God that's going to come at the return of Christ. So the destruction of temple in AD 70 mirrors and anticipates the final judgment of God that's going to come in the eschatological future. I hope that's clear so far. Yes? That's called a pattern prophecy. Please remember that as we go through this. Number four. I want to say that the central point of eschatology, eschatology means the study or the doctrine of the last things. The central point of eschatology is not about all the fascinating things that are going to happen around the coming of Christ. It's not about knowing who the Antichrist is. It's not even about the building of the third temple that might happen. It is not even about the glory of the renewed creation. But the central point of eschatology, the central focus of eschatology is our Lord Jesus Christ. He must be the focus. It is about his return. And it is about him that we're going to speak more in this particular study as well. My last introductory comment. As I present this, I'm going to present a pre-millennial view of things. And that's my view. That's what I've always taught. And that's what I'll be teaching. Um, and that is the second coming is going to happen before the millennial kingdom which means the second coming is going to happen before the millennial kingdom, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and set up the millennial kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. He will judge the wicked nations. He will vindicate the righteous and set up an age of righteousness and peace Allah, the millennial kingdom. So five introductory comments, and then we'll move to what we have on hand. Here is a brief synopsis of the Olivet Discourse. It's given to us in all the three synoptic gospels. You know what synoptic gospels are, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've been talking about it all through this uh, New Testament survey. Uh, it, it's given to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew has the longest version. And for good reason, I'm going to take Matthew, but I can't go through the entire thing. Uh, I will perhaps go till... Uh, the parable of the fig tree, and then just summarize in a couple of sentences all of these things and apply it to us. So what I'll do is I will follow Matthew's version for us this morning, but I'll borrow a few details from the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, as and when they are appropriate here. So firstly, keep your Bibles open, please, and keep your notes open as well. Please make note of things. And I want you all to put your thinking caps on this morning and not remove them until I'm done. Abhishek, you have your thinking cap on? Okay. The first thing, the setting, chapter 24, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me read with verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now listen carefully, please. When you look at the final days of Jesus on earth, especially his ministry in Jerusalem, Jesus has repeated conflicts with 
the religious leaders of his day as he teaches at the temple and he repeatedly leaves the temple. And here is one of those occasions when he left the temple. And he had just announced in Matthew 23, the desolation of Jerusalem. If you remember in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, just a passage above in your Bibles, he said this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings and you were not willing. See your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, remember that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As he announced this particular desolation that's going to come upon the city of Jerusalem, his, he departs from the temple, which means his departure has overtones of divine abandonment. Jesus is God in the flesh. I think just a few weeks ago, I spoke about Christology, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. As Jesus leaves the temple, here is a connotation of a divine abandonment. He's abandoning the temple. God is abandoning the temple and God himself in the flesh has predicted the desolation of Jerusalem. Now here is the city of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. This is the temple here and this is the Mount of Olives. So Jesus here is is going to walk east from the temple across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives as he sits there with the disciples and the disciples ask him this question about the sign of the end of the age and his coming and is going to sit there and answer these questions in these two chapters called the Olivet Discourse or the Eschatological Discourse. It's given on the Mount, Mount of Olives and that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Okay, so as Jesus leaves the temple here, and he is, as he is walking across to the Mount of Olives, the disciples surprisingly draw the attention of Jesus to the huge buildings of the temple. Now, here is a temple, a model at least, of the temple that is called the Second Temple or Herod's Temple. The temple was the religious center of the entire nation. Herod the Great had refurbished it as part of a large national reconstruction program. He built new foundation and new walls and enlarged the temple to twice its size. He enlarged the temple to twice its size, twice its size. And he used huge white marble stones with plates of gold on them. And each of them weighing up to hundred tons, huge marble stones with gold plates on it. Each of them weighing up to hundred tons. And they shine so brightly in the sun that people could hardly even look at it. It was so flashy, so bright was the temple. Josephus, the first century historian, notes that the building's gold plates flash so much in the sun that they look like snow-clad mountains. The rabbis insisted and said, he who has not seen Herod's temple has not seen a beautiful building. And in fact, the Roman historian Tacitus called the temple immensely opulent, immensely opulent. That was Herod's temple. That's where Jesus ministered during his earthly life. So the disciples, when they see the magnificence of this building and the hugeness, the massiveness of this building, they could hardly believe what Jesus was talking about. Lord, did we really hear you right? This huge, massive building that is the religious center of the nation where God's presence is seen, where all of these sacrifices are done and our worship is done. Is that going to become desolate? Is that going to be destroyed? 
Look at verse 2. But he answered them. You see all these things, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus makes it clear to the disciples that the disciples should not be merely impressed by the building itself, the grandeur of the building. The building is temporary, as impressive as it may look for the moment. The building is temporary, but in time it will become dust, is a prediction that Jesus gave. The things that they see here are not permanent, nor is God's blessing eternally upon a building made with stones and gold. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, now he moves from here, he sits on the Mount of Olives, and here is what he's saying. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? As Jesus sat here on the Mount of Olives, he could evidently look through to west into even the holy place there, the entrance of the temple's holy place. And the disciples approach Jesus privately and they ask him what is best understood as a twofold question. Because of the grammar involved in Greek, it can only be two questions, not three questions. And the first one they ask is, when will these things be? What are these things? What things? All the things that Jesus predicted so far. The desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? First question. The second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus now begins to respond to the disciples' questions. He first speaks in general about the events that are likely to characterize the entire age. Now listen very carefully, please. He first speaks about the events in general that are likely to characterize the entire age. And that he calls them as the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. So we're going to be looking at chapter 24, verses 4 through 14. And Jesus calls them the beginning of the birth pains or the beginning of the birth pangs. Are you here so far? Followed so far, right? Okay. Now, the reason I'm asking is because I want all of us to understand this. It's a tough passage, that's why. So don't get me wrong here, please. The first one that Jesus talks about in the beginning of birth pains is this. He says there will be deceptive, false messiahs. Look at chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. As Jesus begins to answer the question of the disciples, the first thing that he does is to begin with a warning against deception by false messiahs. He says there will be false messiahs, there will be false Christs, and they will deceive many people. The claims of the messianic pretenders should not lead the disciples astray. That's what Jesus is warning here. So discernment is needed on the part of the disciples not to be drawn into any false eschatological claims. There'll be many who will rise up in the world and say, I'm the Christ. Aren't there many in the world today? I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. We don't need to be alarmed by it. Discernment is required on our part not to be 
drawn into these false eschatological claims made in the name of Jesus, because all these false claims have nothing to do with the plan of God. They have nothing to do with the plan of God. Now, listen very carefully, please. This comment by Jesus shows us that there is going to be an interval between the departure of Jesus and the return of Jesus. There is going to be an interval between the departure of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And the interval is going to be so long for there to be deceptive messiahs to come. But Jesus here says, there will be messiahs. Don't be deceived. You must exercise dis uh, discernment. That's the first thing he gives. The second thing he says, he talks about wars, famines, and earthquakes. Wars, famines, and earthquakes. Look at verse chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. I'm just, I'm just briefly going through all of this. The entire study might take about eight to nine hours, but we can't sit here for that long. We only have 45 minutes. Just briefly going through all of these things. Look at verses 6 through 8. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all these are but the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus adds social turmoil and civil turmoil to the list of things or list of events that precede the end. These are the list of the events that will precede the end. And the disciples, he says, will hear of wars. He will hear, they will hear of rumors of wars. It will be a time of international chaos. There will be international chaos. There will be famines and earthquakes. Now, let me borrow some material from Luke. To this list that Jesus gives here in Matthew, Luke also adds pestilences. It can also be translated as pandemics. Pestilences or pandemics other terrors and signs from heaven is what Luke adds to it. But Jesus says the disciples ought not to be disturbed or surprised by such world events. Such things are necessary in the plan of God. And such things happen because God has planned them. And Jesus says, even with these events coming and presenting themselves, the end does not follow immediately. There may be chaos, but the end is not near. And Jesus says here, look at the verse, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. The pains of woman, a, a, a woman in labor was a metaphor for eschatological distress that would come in the future, especially in the Jewish literature and also in the New Testament. The pains of a woman in labor is a metaphor, a Jewish metaphor, and also a New Testament metaphor for the eschatological distress and the troubles that will come, the last day troubles that will come, that precede the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus here is saying that all these are birth pains, which means before Jesus comes and actually sets up the kingdom, this is a distress that the world must go through. There is a time of distress. There's an age of distress that the world will go through. And just like a, woman birth, a woman's birth pains start, they increase, increase in frequency, and then a child comes. Once these birth pains start, which means these signs or events start, you cannot stop. The eschatological clock of God has started ticking. It will only move towards the time when Jesus will come back for sure. He will return, judge the wicked, set up the kingdom, and vindicate the righteous. Have you ever heard of a time um, where a woman's birth pains have started and all of a sudden stopped? No, they'll only increase in frequency. 
they'll only increase to the time of delivery and there's a delivery, right? Same thing with these, as Jesus calls them, birth pains. The events start sparsely. They become increasingly frequent, increasingly frequent towards the day of his coming. And one day there'll be the son of man returning on the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. Moving forward, the third thing that Jesus talks about is persecution, deception, and apostasy. Look at verses 9 through 12 of chapter 24. Then they, will be deliver, then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And uh, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, uh, the love of many will grow cold. Deceptive messiahs, violent wars, and ge uh, geological upheavals will all be accompanied by persecution is what Jesus says. And the disciples will be universally hated because of their association with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this hatred for Jesus and his disciples will also result in their murder. This external pressure from outside onto the church, onto the community of the disciples, will have consequences for the community of Jesus himself or for the disciples themselves. Some disciples will fall away from their commitment to Jesus and they will hate and betray their own fellow brothers. Fourthly, Jesus talks about perseverance and mission. Look at verses 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Amidst all of these events that are happening, the response of the true disciples of Jesus to all of these horrifying circumstances should be one of loyalty, should be one of loyalty. We must be loyal to Jesus amidst all of these horrifying, terrible circumstances. And Jesus promises salvation to those who endure till the end of their lives, to those who endure till the end of their lives. Jesus here is not setting forth a doctrine of salvation by works. Rather, he's emphasizing that genuine faith will result in Christian life that is even willing to face persecution and terror and still stand strong for the Lord until the end of our lives. This contrasts with the previous verses that we saw where because of deception, some people will fall away, but the loyal people, the real disciples of Jesus Christ will stand strong. And this perseverance of the disciples will result in the spreading of the kingdom message and then the end will come says Jesus. Now, these Jesus calls, all these things Jesus calls as the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. Now, listen to me very carefully, please, in the next slide. Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 14, that Jesus called as the birth pains, summarizes a period characterized by false cries, wars, famines, Earthquakes, pestilences, cosmic signs from, from Luke here, and pandemics, false religion, secularism, and the preaching of the gospel. Such events would characterize the time from the time that Jesus is talking here on the Mount of Olives, where he's giving the Olivet Discourse, all the way till the middle of the tribulation. Such events will characterize 
the age between the time that Jesus is talking here on the Olivet Discourse right now till the middle of tribulation. So the entire age from the time that Jesus spoke this particular uh, message or the discourse called the Olivet Discourse until the middle of the tribulation period, this entire age will see these birth pains. And we are right in the middle of it, isn't it? What are those birth pains? There'll be false messiahs. There'll be wars, famines, earthquakes, pandemics, pestilences, cosmic signs, which is like stars falling and all of that, persecution, false religion, and the preaching of the gospel. That will characterize the entire age until the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, are you and I surprised by wars and rumors of wars that we hear? Are you and I surprised because there's a pandemic around us? Are you and I surprised that there's a lawlessness increasing heavily in the land? Jesus said, this is bound to happen because this is in the plan of God. And remember, once the birth pains begin, they'll only get more and more intense until the coming of the Lord. So the days we're going to see in the future, we'll have increased lawlessness, increased rumors of wars and wars and perhaps pandemics, pestilences, etc., false messiahs, etc., etc. Isn't it? So Christians of all people should have more answers about these than questions. These are the beginning of birth pangs. Moving quickly, the next section is called the abomination of desolation that Jesus talks about in chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. Chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. Is it clear so far, dear church? Yes? All right, great. Okay, we'll move next to chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. Again, I want to divide that into a few sections. The first thing is that there's a menacing reminder from the book of Daniel. Look at chapter 24, verse 15, what Jesus says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, now look at the editorial comment that Matthew adds. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. This is Jesus' most direct response to the question of the disciples. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus' direct response is this, especially about temple's destruction. He's saying that there is a desolating sacrilege that will happen, abomination that causes desolation. And he alludes to Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. You know, when we did Daniel for almost a year, you know, we studied that. Remember, I'm not going to get into that. There's no time. Now, Daniel's prophecy of the desolation of the temple, listen, please, very carefully. I'll just summarize that in two sentences. Daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation is usually linked to what Antiochus IV Epiphanes did to the temple by desecrating it in 167 BC. 167 BC, which is about 160 years prior to the time of Jesus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, um, Epiphanes means in Greek, the glorious man, and the Jews called it Epimenes, which means the madman. Okay, it's just a play on words. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes, what he did is he came and desecrated the temple, abolished the sacrifices. He went and sacrificed a pig on the altar and desecrated the entire temple. 
So that the Jews say is a fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied as the abomination that causes desolation. But Jesus here is talking about a yet future event called the abomination that causes desolation. So we must see that this is also a patent prophecy that cannot be restricted merely to the days of the Maccabees. Maccabees is a time where they fought the war and they got their independence back for about 100 years, right? Which became the Hasmonean dynasty. Okay, now the words here that G uh, Matthew has let the readers understand may mean that Matthew is encouraging his readers to ponder on this matter and understand. So these words stress the desecration of the holy place that is yet to come, yet future. So how do we understand this? Now look at this slide, please. It is best to understand the abomination that causes desolation as having multiple fulfillments in, in the history. The uh, abomination that causes desolation has multiple fulfillments in history. One fulfillment was prior to the time of Jesus, 167 BC, when Antiochus IV Epiphanes came and desecrated the temple. Remember that, I just talked about it. The second fulfillment will be in 70 AD, future to the time when Jesus is talking about, where the Roman general Titus Vespasian came and desecrated the temple, destroyed the temple, made the city desolate as well. And there'll be a third fulfillment as well, perhaps, uh, not just, there could be multiple fulfillments in the future, but certainly a third fulfillment in the eschatological future, right in the middle of tribulation, when the Antichrist will exalt himself as God in the temple and he will desecrate the temple. Multiple fulfillments of the abomination that causes desolation. Spoken of by Daniel, fulfilled in the time of Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, fulfilled in 70 AD, and yet there is a future fulfillment as well in the eschatological future where the Antichrist will show up in the tribulation period and cause the abomination that causes desolation. Very briefly, the next thing that Jesus talks about is instructions for flight. Look at chapter 24, verses 16 through 20. When the Antichrist comes perhaps in the future, or what happened in 70 AD as well, uh, what was the instructions that Jesus was giving? Look at verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why? Why? Because the temple has been desecrated. The city has been left desolate. Let the one who's on the housetop not go, not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women. How considerate Jesus is, isn't it? He's thinking about pregnant women. Look at this. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So when the temple is desecrated, Jesus' disciples must flee to the Judean hill country, is what Jesus is saying. And the call to flee to the mountains for safety is a common Old Testament theme. You usually flee to the mountains for safety. And the urgency of the hour precludes packing or going home and picking up any essentials, even like an overcoat. And Jesus is here saying that flight will be especially rigorous for pregnant women and nursing mothers. He also says that winter might make it difficult because of bad roads and extreme weather. And he's also talking about praying that it may not be on the Sabbath. Why? Because usually people have stipulations of the Sabbath. There's only a certain distance that you can walk on the Sabbath. Because of all of these restrictions, perhaps, Jesus is saying that, pray that it may not be on the Sabbath. Thirdly, 
God's care during the unique tribulation in verses 21 and 22. Look at that, please. For then there'll be great tribulation, such as, as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is saying there's going to be distress, there's going to be upheaval, there's going to be anguish, like something that has never been seen before. It'll never be seen again as well. But because of God's gracious concern to deliver his elect and save his elect, those days will be cut short, is what Jesus says here. And Matthew and Mark here, both of them talk about a period of unprecedented suffering and trouble called the Great Tribulation in creation. That is something that did not happen in Jerusalem at its fall in AD 70. As bad as it was, it was not as terrible as Jesus is talking about here. And so there is coming a time yet future for all of us where there is going to be a great tribulation period where there will be massive suffering, massive anguish, massive distress, like something that's never been seen before ever since the beginning of creation. Lastly, Jesus speaks about, again, false messiahs and false prophets. Look at verses 23 through 28. Then if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say to you, look, here, here is he in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now look at this verse, please. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You cannot miss it. Whenever the, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So although Jesus talks of the false prophets and false messiahs as the beginning of the birth pangs, they will continue even into the tribulation period, and their activity will be especially intense near the end before Jesus comes. And their miraculous activity could deceive, if possible, even the elect, says Jesus. And so he says, be careful. Don't listen to all the false claims. If somebody says to you, there he is in the room, or there he is in the wilderness, don't go there. Why? Because the coming of the Son of Man is not going to be a secretive thing like that, where he's hiding in a room, but you just cannot miss the coming of the Son of Man. It is going to be unmistakably clear. For as the lightning that strikes in the east will go all the way to the west and everybody can see it, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That also shows his identity as to who he is. In contrast to all these little false messiahs who say that I'm hiding in the door, come and meet me there. For as the lightning that strikes in the east goes all the way to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then Jesus makes a statement, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. One of the toughest verses in the entire New Testament to interpret. There have been many interpretations, but I think the best way to look at it is just like how the vultures don't miss a corpse, so shall the coming of the Son of Man not be missed. It's that clear. I think that's a straightforward interpretation. How do we understand this? Now, listen very carefully, please. What happens to Jerusalem in AD 70 will be like the real end, 
mark my words very carefully, it'll be like the real end, but it's not the end. It's a pattern for what's going to happen in the end, which involves the return of Christ. What happened in AD 70 to the city of Jerusalem? Like I said earlier, the Roman general Titus Vespasian came and raised the city, destroyed the temple, and Jerusalem became desolate for its rejection of God's visitation. Last time when I talked about Christology, I said one of the themes of Luke is the time of God's visitation, isn't it? And Jerusalem missed the time of God's visitation. God visited them in the person of his son. They rejected him. And God's judgment has come upon the city of Jerusalem. It's been raised and it's been laid desolate. Josephus, the Jewish historian, also a Roman historian, he says that 1.1 million Jews were massacred. 97,000 Jews were taken captive in that period. And the siege went on for so long around the city that children, infants, I'm sorry to say this, were cooked and eaten because there was lack of food. There was a lot of famine, such anguish in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Unfaithfulness to God will lead to severe judgment. However, listen, please. In verses 15 through 28 that we saw so far, Jesus does not just answer the question of the short term, but he is also extending the discussion to a long-term eschatological future. And these two events mirror each other, and they are a pattern for each other. And one becomes a down payment for what's going to happen in the future. If Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70 was a reality, and history testifies to that, there was great suffering. There's going to be much escalated suffering when Jerusalem will once again be surrounded by armies in the eschatological future before the return of Christ. So one mirrors the other. One is a pattern for the other, and the fulfillment of one will show that the other one will also be fulfilled as well. The next thing is the coming of the Son of Man. Look at verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will moan and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So immediately after, look at this, here is the abomination of desolation in the future, and there's a great suffering, this is the great tribulation, immediately after those days will be the coming of the Son of Man. And by the way, here rapture of the church is assumed, uh, it's not in the passage because it's not about the church, but we are just talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ here. So there will be heavenly disturbances preceding his coming, and uh, all these will predict the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says here, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, the stars will uh, fall from the sky, and the coming of the Son of Man, the return of the Son of Man, is the event to which all these signs will point. And people will moan. Why? There's no more time to repent. The Son of Man is coming in judgment, and they will beat their breasts and moan. The time is up. Now, this image is important for us, that the Son of Man is coming on clouds because it's Yahweh who comes on clouds in judgment in the Old Testament. There's again a passage about the deity of Christ, where he comes with divine majesty. And when he comes, what does he do? He will gather his elect from all the corners of the world. He will gather them from everywhere. 
very quickly. Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree to sum it all up. Look at verses 32 through 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches bloom, uh, become tender, and it puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus reinforces all of what he said in one parable, and he says this about the fig tree. Now, fig trees were very common in first century Israel, and especially around the Mount of Olives where Jesus is sitting. They were loved for their sweet fruit. I love figs too. You love too. I know they're Indian figs, but the actual figs I've heard are very sweet. When a fig tree begins to show shoots, small shoots, it means that summer is near. In winter, the tree is actually very bare. In summer, as, as it puts forth shoots, it means that summer is approaching and summer is near. And just like when you see a fig tree sprouting out small shoots, and you know that summer is near, when you see all these things that Jesus talked about, you know that he's right at the door and he's ready to walk in. He's right at the door and he's ready to walk in. And the disciples can conclude very confidently that the kingdom of God is near. And the kingdom has been inaugurated. I'm talking about the consummation of the kingdom where Jesus comes, he returns, and he will set, he will set up the kingdom. And Jesus finally finished his, uh, his entire discourse with a remark that has not lacked controversy. He said, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Now, several interpretations again, but I think the best way to look at it, in my opinion, would be this. And I could be wrong in this because there are numerous interpretations in this. In the Gospel of Matthew, consistently, if you have to interpret, the, the phrase this generation is always used of the wicked people. So this generation is a generation of wicked people that will start right from the time of Jesus, and they will be there all the way until Jesus returns. There will be a lot of wicked people across the age. And that generation of wicked people will only pass away at the return of the Son of Man. And the others will be vindicated. And finally, Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. Having said this, Jesus from verse 36, Matthew 24, verse 36, all the way till the end of Matthew 25, he becomes more instructional now. So far, he's talked about the events surrounding Jerusalem's destruction, the entire age, spanning the entire age, and also his future coming. Now he doesn't give, give them any more information about the end of the age and all of that. He begins to talk about how they need to prepare themselves for all these things. And that's important to us. What is the proper response to all these things? I want to apply it very quickly, and I'll just take five more minutes. Listen to me very carefully, please. Number one, be watchful, ready, and faithful to the end. Did you hear me, church? Be watchful, ready, and faithful to the end. And Jesus gave several parables here. Let me just very briefly talk about three parables that he gives in the next chapter. The parable of the good and the wicked servants he gives. You know the story, right? The faithful steward is blessed because when the master returns, he is found doing exactly what the master asked him to do. 
In contrast to that, there are the wicked servants who take the delay of the master's coming uh, for their own advantage and they engage in crooked practices. And then the master is going to return on a day that they don't expect and at an hour that they do not know. And when the master returns, he will punish these people. In fact, in the words of Jesus, look at verse 51. He will cut them into pieces and assign him in a place with the hypocrites where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Complete unfaithfulness will be exposed at the time of Jesus when he returns. Complete unfaithfulness will be exposed at the time of judgment when Jesus returns. And some who are seemingly associated with Jesus outwardly right now associated with Jesus will be exposed for who they are when he returns. And therefore the exhortation is be faithful, be faithful until he, until he returns, be faithful. And the second parable is the parable of the 10 virgins as we call, right? Five foolish, let's not call them foolish. Let's call them negligent, five negligent and five prompt virgins or bridesmaids in the modern day language. So while the negligent bridesmaids, they went to buy oil, uh, hearing that the bridegroom is coming, by the time they buy oil and come back, the bridegroom has already come. And the people who are prepared, they get up, the five virgins, and they go into the party, and the doors are shut. Now, here is where Jesus moves away from the usual cultural practice of Jewish customs of Jewish weddings. Usually in Jewish weddings, the weddings, the doors are never shut. Anybody can walk in any time. But Jesus here is saying in this parable, the doors are shut. And then the virgins come back, having bought oil, they knock on the door, and their request is denied and rejected. And Jesus makes this point, therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Be prepared. Be ready. Be watchful. Be ready. And be faithful. And finally, the parable of the talents is a warning to make use of what God has given us. Make the best use of what God has given us. Time, money, talents, gifts, spiritual gifts, family, everything. Make use of it to the glory of God. Be faithful. So the first exhortation to me and to all of us in the church this morning, based on the passage, would be be, be watchful, be ready, and be faithful. Lastly, set your eyes always on our blessed hope. Set your eyes always on our blessed hope. Paul says in Titus 2.13, waiting for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What is our blessed hope? It is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, my dear brothers and sisters, the next great event in the eschatological program of God is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the air before the seven year tribulation period to gather to himself, to snatch away with him those who belong to him and take them into heaven. It's called the rapture. That's our blessed hope. And Paul adds and says this, we will be with the Lord forever. Isn't that a beautiful statement? We will be with the Lord forever. Blessed hope. Blessed hope. This morning, I want to ask all of us three questions. And listen to me very carefully, please. I ask myself these questions very sincerely as well in relation to our hope. First one, do you often think about the truth 
of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I often think about the truth of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Number two, when you think about it, does your heart yearn for it? Do you want to meet him soon? Number three, do you pray for his coming? You know, in the early church, there was one Aramaic word that they used as prayer. You know what it is? Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus. That's a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, some years ago, Pradeep uh, challenged me this. He asked me, do you pray for the Lord's coming? And in, at that time, I said, no. He said, I do. Come, Lord Jesus. It's a prayer, a genuine prayer. If you have fallen short, and if I have fallen short in answering these three questions, there could be three possibilities. Number one, you may be a believer in Christ, but you may not have been well taught about the second coming. And perhaps your lack of knowledge about it is limiting your eager expectation of the return. That's one possibility. There's a second possibility. You may be a believer in Christ, and you may have had knowledge of the doctrine of Christ, about his return, and yet you've grown cold and distant and never felt for some time how precious Christ is to you. And you never cared about the precious things of the Christian life for some time. You've grown cold. You don't have a longing to meet him anymore. That's a real possibility. Third possibility, you may not be a believer in Christ, you may be professing to be one, but you don't know him personally, and you're in desperate need of him as you sit here listening to God's word. May I speak to those people this morning and say, you must repent and trust in Jesus Christ because the judge is at the door. He may walk in any moment. Our blessed hope involves a confident expectation that salvation is ours, not wrath. For God has destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ and not for wrath. And the songwriter says this, and when with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, it'll be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. For our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the very power that enables him to bring everything under his control is able to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Be watchful, be ready, be faithful, and set our eyes always on our blessed hope. Thank you for your patience. May the Lord bless you all as we consider the second coming. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for your powerful word, your word that speaks to us much more in a much more relevant way than our morning's newspaper. Thank you for all of these precious truths in your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, if you've grown cold about this, we confess, O Lord, that we need to return to this precious truth and yearn for your coming and pray aloud with the early church, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Help us, O Lord, in that pursuit Help us to strive towards the inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven. And help us not just to take this merely as head knowledge, but let this affect our heart and our emotions 
to love you more and more, to expect your return, to be with you, to want to be with you for the rest of eternity, O oh Lord. What a blessed hope we have. And I pray for those who don't have this blessed hope, O oh Lord, we pray that not one person sitting here would be turned away on the day of judgment. The judge is at the door and help all of us to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. May your name be glorified in everything. In Jesus' name.